0: We have been in a series through the Gospel of Mark, and we're down to just our last two messages in this Gospel, and we are at the place of the darkest point, not only in human history, not only in, in Mark's Gospel, but in human history. Darkness is something that blind doesn't just merely blind. It has the ability to incapacitate us. Have you ever been in a space or in a place where you really felt like you were in the midst of real darkness? Not just emotionally, but physically. Have you ever been in a room where there was zero windows, the doors closed, and it felt like the darkness was real? There's an anxiety and there is a, a, a pain and an anguish that comes in that, a fear, if you will. But then there is also a, a complete paralyzation. I think it was one Wednesday night when we were still having Bible study right over here in this room, that we got done with Bible study, everybody had gone home, I turned out all of the lights, and I attempted at that point to make it back to my office. Well, it was later in the fall or in the winter when it was very dark outside, and I got into this back hallway, and I remember walking down the hallway, and all of a sudden, it was was pitch black, and I made, I felt it, but I decided I'm going to Go on. I think I know my way around this. And what I passed, what I thought was the right spot, I made a turn and I walked nose first, hard as I could, right into the wall. Because darkness doesn't just bring a, a spirit or a sense of fear or anxiety, darkness brings a, uh, with it a paralyzation of our ability to accomplish anything. You can't function in the dark, you can't work in the dark. And that's not just true of the physical darkness, that's also true of the emotional darkness that we experience. The pain and the anguish that comes about in our lives. Some of you may be here this morning and you would say that you are in the midst of what Christians have called through the centuries a dark night of the soul. And you are weighed down with the anxiety and the fear of the last year plus. As we are having friends and families who are suffering under the anxiety and the depression of isolation and loneliness because of COVID and so many other things that we've done and we have pulled back from one another, but maybe you're just here and you're in a season of struggle, whether that be in your home, whether that be in your workplace, and with that can come a paralysis, a fear, and an anxiety. Darkness is scary. Darkness is paralyzing. We use darkness for a reason. The Bible uses darkness as a symbol for many different things. The Bible says that darkness is a sign of sin. John chapter 3 verse 19, John says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus there talking to Nicodemus talks about our tendency when we are in sin... To just run deeper into sin. Because the light of exposure is painful. That happens all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. What was their first instinct? It was to hide. To not move towards the Lord, but to move away from the Lord. But darkness isn't just a sign in the Bible of sin. Darkness in the Bible is a sign of judgment. Jesus is in another place. In Matthew 22 says, The king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Darkness there is used as a sign and a symbol of the separation of God from man. The ultimate judgment against sin. We see it in the Old Testament as well. In Amos chapter 8. On that day declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts in the morning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it a day like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Darkness in Scripture is a sign for sin. It's a sign for judgment. Darkness in our lives, as I said, it can paralyze us with fear and with anxiety so that we can't function in the dark. But praise the Lord, the Bible tells us that darkness has no ability to limit God. Genesis chapter 1, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of waters. Psalm 139, verses 11 and 12. If I say surely the darkness shall cover me and the light, be about, uh, light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God is not limited by darkness. God is not paralyzed by darkness. Instead, the Bible tells us God is often at work within and despite the darkness that would cripple you and me. And that's exactly what we see in Mark Chapter 15, verses 33 through 39 this morning. In these verses, we see that what is the darkest moment in all of history shines the brightest light of hope for humanity. Look with me, if you will, in these verses, beginning in verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come down to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, you are glorious. You are matchless. In you there is no sin and there is no darkness at all, for you are light. And though darkness would paralyze us, Heavenly Father, it doesn't paralyze you. And I thank you that in the midst of these hours of darkness, when our Savior was crucified for us, you were working in the midst of that darkness to set us free, to give us hope, And so I pray that this morning you would shine the light of your hope into our darkness and into our despair, that you would set us free from the very things, the sins that would hold us back, from the heavy burdens that would weigh us down, that we might run with endurance the race that has been set before us by this one Jesus Christ who endured what we deserved. And I pray that we would find in these verses the hope that we need not only to face the darkness in our hearts, but the darkness in the world and find the hope to overcome it as we grow deeper in our dependence on Jesus and the good news that he has won the victory that sets us free. It's in his name that we pray. Amen and amen. Just by way of brief review, the verses that we're looking at this morning are actually a small part of a larger section. It's part of the larger section that is the Gospel of Mark, but I shared with you last week as we preached verses 16 down through verse 32, and we had read the entire section last week, that this, is, this entire section chronicles the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And throughout it, there are allusions to Old Testament prophecies that are being fulfilled. And I gave you a homework assignment last week. I'd encourage you to take that homework assignment and go and read Psalm 22 as just one place where you can see that everything that took place on this cross was anticipated, planned, prophesied by God hundreds of years prior to it taking place. And as we saw, the Bible says sin as a sign of, or I mean sorry, darkness is a sign of both sin and judgment. And in these verses we see God's darkness descend. His judgment come down, and amidst the darkness, we find God working in mysterious and yet powerful ways for you and for me. And in these verses, we see three specific incidents that I want to just hang our hats on as we're walking through this passage of Scripture to see what it means for you and I today. The first thing that we see in these verses is we hear the cry of Jesus Christ. As Jesus is hanging on this cross, He cries out the words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabaxani, which interpreted means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a direct quotation from Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? As Jesus called this out, it was misunderstood by those that were around him. Those that were watching him as he cried this out in that original language believe that he's calling out for Elijah, who many people believed would have the authority or the ability since he never died but was instead taken to heaven. He would have the authority to come and rescue those who were falsely accused, those who needed saving. And in this moment, they hear this cry and they get excited because, remember, they're mocking Jesus Christ. They're making fun of all of his claims. And so as an exercise in that mocking to extend his suffering, they run over to this this jar that would have had a sour wine. And by that we're not talking about something that would have been an insult. Think about it basically the way that I understand it as I'm reading through this. It was a rudimentary first century Gatorade. It was something that soldiers would have carried with them. It's something that farmers would have had as a thirst quencher. It's not an insult. The insult is in the fact that it was meant to give him just enough strength to for his suffering to prolong. And so they misunderstood it, and just as they misunderstood it then, we have a tendency to misunderstand it as well now. The misunderstanding revolves a lot of different things. Some assert that Jesus in this moment, despite all of his prophecy, despite all of his efforts, despite everything that he has taught, finds out in this moment that God's not coming to his aid. And so as he cries out this question, he has a moment of doubt of faithlessness as he's hanging there, as he is disappointed by God, as he feels abandoned by God. Others have the tendency to interpret this saying, well, it's not, even though that's what Jesus might have felt, he was mistaken, because we know God never would forsake him. Others think that he is employing what would have been a rabbinic practice, because whereas you and I have chapters and verses to reference to get people to places in the Bible, that didn't exist when the Bible was originally written. And instead, if a teacher or a preacher wanted to get you to some place in the Bible, they would quote a famous or, or popular phrase within that passage of Scripture to get your mind there. And so they believe that Jesus isn't actually just quoting the first verse as a legitimate cry from the cross as he thinks that God is forsaking him, or he feels God is forsaking him, but instead Jesus is referencing the whole psalm. And what Jesus wants us to really understand is not his forsakenness, but the victory that he's accomplishing. Because Psalm 22 ends with a note of victory. As the psalmist cries out, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard him when he cried to him. So there are some that think that Jesus is actually pointing beyond just the opening verse to this and he is declaring his victory from the cross. All of these fall short because on the one hand we either can't take Jesus' words at face value, or we have to insert some sin into Jesus Christ that he either loses faith in God, he was mistaken in what he proclaimed, or Mark is not giving us the clear indication of what Jesus has done. Part of this is because I believe that we are uncomfortable with what Jesus cries here. What many have called through the years the cry of dereliction from the cross. And it's because, if we're really honest, none of us like suffering and anguish and pain. It makes us uncomfortable. Which is why when we interact with someone in our family, in our lives, who is enduring legitimate suffering, and they're asking this question, why God? Where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me, God? Why are you so far from me and why are you silent? Why won't you answer my prayers? When we find people in that heartache, and that pain, what is our first response? It's to immediately jump past their pain and their suffering and, again, and instead begin to lecture them and how they need to have better faith. You know God doesn't abandon you. You know God hasn't forsaken you. Don't pray like that. Instead, you need to toughen up, buttercup. because we're uncomfortable with the pain. We're uncomfortable with the anguish. But what we find here is not some misunderstanding by Jesus Christ, not some looking beyond what he's going through. We find in here the very real pain and suffering and anguish of Jesus Christ as he is forsaken by the Father. The Bible tells us that in this moment, Paul writes that he who knew no sin became sin for us, not just physically. As he hung on the cross, we shared that last week, something of extreme spiritual significance took place here, namely that unless his soul shared in the punishment, he would have been the redeemer of bodies alone, as John Calvin said. In other words, if Jesus' suffering was only physical, Jesus' power to save us stops at our bodies. Instead, Jesus' suffering had to extend to his soul so that our souls might be rescued from our sin, from the depths of the darkness that is there. But still, as Dr. Charles Cranfield points out, while this God-forsakenness was utterly real, the unity of the blessed Trinity was even then unbroken. In some mysterious, I told you, what's happening in the darkness is both mysterious and profound. We don't understand this, but in this moment, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who has existed in perfect fellowship with God from all of eternity, in a relationship of love, who shares all the divinity and the deity of the Father, In this moment, as he is taking on, receiving the sin of the world, he experiences the wrath of God as he is forsaken by God. And in this moment, the father who decreed that light would come into existence turns his back on the son who was the one through whom that light came into existence in the first place. And darkness descends. Jesus is experiencing a very real torment in his soul as he bears our sin. And he cries out, using the Bible's own language, asking God, why are you forsaking me? For those of us that have been in that moment where we have sat with someone who is experiencing the very real pain and anguish of despair and depression and darkness and who cries out, God, where are you? Why are you abandoning me? We have to understand. Maybe you never have or maybe you haven't. You've messed this up. You've got to understand that is not a lack of faith. That's the very essence of faith. Because the Old Testament is filled with prayers and acts of faith coming to God with our questions, with our doubts, with our fears, with our anxieties. As Jesus hangs on this cross, he uses the very language of the Bible to express and to cry out the very real anguish in his soul. Why have you forsaken me? One commentator pointed out that it's only an abused child who has learned not to cry out to his father when he's out of pain, afraid, or confused. Think about it. When you've got a child who wants something, who needs something, who's afraid, who's confused, what does that child do? He cries out. The younger they are, the more violent the cry. Why don't you understand this? Why can't I get this across to you? Think about a diaper an infant in diapers. And his diaper needs to be changed. He can't communicate in any other way except he screams and he cries out. The most terrifying sound in the world is the sound of a child who won't cry anymore, an infant who won't cry anymore because it's learned no matter how much I cry, no one's coming. So, why would we silence one another when Jesus Christ gives us the perfect example that in your anguish and in your pain, the thing to do is not to turn away from God, is to not toughen up Buttercup, but is instead to run to God with the very language of the Bible, crying out to Him, begging Him, Where are you? What's going on? Would you intervene? Would you do something? We can learn from Jesus what to do in the midst of very real suffering that we face. We can go to God in prayer using the very language of God's Word. The second thing that we see in this passage of Scripture is not only do we hear the cry of Jesus Christ, we see the rending of the curtain. After Jesus cries out this utter, uh, the loud cry and breathes his last, Mark says in verse 38 that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is another point of contention and controversy. If you're like me, you've grown up hearing your entire life that what this is talking about is this is talking about the veil that existed between the most holy place in all of Judaism, the place where the Ark of the Covenant once stood, the place where God's glory dwelled, where no man was allowed to go except the high priest one time a year, the veil before the Holy of Holies. And that's a very real possibility, but the other reality is that there was a second curtain, a curtain that was beautiful, it was a giant Babylonian tapestry with pictures of all of the hosts of heaven all over it, and it was a temple that was public, that separated the inner court from the outer court. It was a, it was a curtain that could have been seen as people toured the temple, and that normal people wouldn't have been allowed to go beyond. And we don't know, based on what Mark says, which curtain it actually was. The tendency, the reason that we most often think that it was the the curtain, the veil that separated the holy of holies from everything else is because of what the author of Hebrews tells us. That Jesus went behind the veil and served as the once-for-all sacrifice that brings us into the presence of God. But what we have to be careful of is we have to be careful of reading the author of Hebrews theology into Mark's theology. And we have to ask the question, what then is Mark's theological message? To answer your question, I don't know which veil it was, which curtain it was. But I can tell you based on our study of Mark what I believe Mark intends it to to mean. Just as John recorded Christ's words from the cross, it is finished. Mark's recording the curtain being ripped from top to bottom is his way of saying the same thing. Because Mark wants us to understand as we read through this, Mark is actually making a very clear reference back to Mark chapter 1. You only see this in the Greek, and that's why you, by compensating me, paid for my, college, my seminary education so that you don't have to learn the Greek. But the word that Mark uses here for torn only appears one other time. If you go back to Mark chapter 15, when the high priest Hears Jesus and proclaims blasphemy, he tears his, thro- his robes. That's not the same word for tear, even though it shows up that in our translation. The word that Mark uses here for torn only shows up in one other place. That's Mark chapter 1 at the baptism of Jesus Christ. When, if you remember, when Jesus came out of the waters, what happened? The heavens opened. God rent the heavens, and the Spirit came down. God tore the heavens. And the Spirit came down, and the voice of God declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That was the beginning, the initiation of Jesus Christ's public ministry. Now, here at the climax of Jesus Christ's public ministry, we hear again that something is torn, and a voice is spoken, and the proclamation is made, This is the Son of God. Mark wants us to understand that this is the point that everything has been building towards, that as Jesus dies, he declares his ministry is finished. As God rends the heavens and sends this declaration of Christ's sonship, the ministry climaxes. But more than this, Mark is sending a message that something has been destroyed. When something is torn down, when something is torn it's a violent picture. Throughout scripture, you see people tearing their clothes when they're angry, tearing their clothes when they're sad. Tearing their clothes is a sign of grief and a sign of judgment. But more than that, tearing down something is its destruction and its rejection. Have you ever been part of a, of a note burning ceremony? When y'all finished and you paid off this building, what did you do with that mortgage? Did you burn it? Did you tear it up? Did you throw it in the trash? Maybe you had a bill. Maybe you had a a credit card debt. You have a home, and what we do is we destroy that. We rip it up as we declare that we are no longer bound by that law or by that rule. So in the tearing of the curtain, God is sending a sign of judgment on the temple. If you remember Jesus as he came into Jerusalem has been speaking out against the temple and against the Jewish religious cult at this particular time as God has they have rejected God they're going to reject his Messiah so God is going to reject them so as God rips this curtain he is sending a message of God's judgment. RT France puts it this way the event is for mark the fulfillment of the prophecy made in both mark 14:58 and 15:29. With Jesus' death, the old religious order has come to an end. And those who have rejected Jesus, the religious leaders, have now been rejected by God. God is now in this act. He is rejecting the Old Testament law of works and works-based righteousness as he has created in Jesus Christ a new way by which you and I are welcomed into his presence, not based on what you or I do, what you and I don't do, but instead solely based on what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. It's God's rejection of that Old Testament system and the implementation of something that is brand new. In the midst of our darkness and in the midst of our despair and depression and the pain of the world that is around us, as it descends upon us, We've just seen that we can follow Jesus Christ's example of going to the Lord in prayer. But do you have much desire to go to someone who feels far away from you? Someone you feel is ignoring you? When you're in an accountability conversation or relationship, you've got someone who's struggling. And you serve in that capacity where you have the responsibility and the privilege of shepherding and caring for and tending a wounded sheep of God to move them beyond and out of their sin. One of the worst things that we can do is expect that individual to pick up the phone in the moment that they feel tempted and call us. How then can we expect people who are suffering and trapped in darkness and despair to reach out to the very one they feel abandoned by? The motivation to go to God in darkness is this, in times of darkness, is this point in Scripture, where God has rended the curtain, has made a way for us to come into his presence, to have access and knowledge to God. Our motivation to seek God in prayer is the very fact that he's done everything that is necessary in his son, Jesus Christ, to welcome us into his presence, not to keep us out, not to be a barrier, to present any type of barriers to us, but instead the motivation that we need to run to God is the affirmation from Scripture that He is there and He is listening. That He is near at hand. Not only is He near at hand, He is with you in the midst of that time. The tearing of the temple, of the, of the curtain, means that there is a new covenant in Jesus Christ, whereby we are welcomed not just into God's presence, but into His family as sons and as daughters. If there's anybody in the world that has access to me, it's my boys. No matter how busy, no matter where I am, I pray that I become better And not telling my boys, hold on just a minute. After this, not right now, once you, change your, once you change your actions, once you change your behaviors. As a father, I fail a time and time and time again as I put up barriers to my son's access to me. I pray that I would grow in more like God, in more, grow in godliness. Because I know that there's never a moment when I go to God that God says, not right now. But that God is always There. And the curtain is a symbol of God's welcoming us into his presence. And the curtain, and then all of this, results in the confession of the centurion. Verse 39 says, When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The way someone died by means of crucifixion was they died by exhaustion. They hung there long enough, exposed to the elements that they lost all of their physical capacity to do anything. Most of them passed out and died in their sleep. But not Jesus. As this centurion sees the darkness fall, as he hears the cries of this man, there's something in witnessing the death of this man and the way that Jesus died. As he cried out, as he prayed, as he died in his full strength, because he told us in his word that no one takes his life from him. Instead, he lays it down. And so in this moment, full of strength and full of his mind, he cries out and he calls out, it is finished, and he lays down his life. And that provokes a response from this man standing there. Which exposes something that we have seen up to this point. It exposes who's not standing there. It's important who doesn't say this as much as it is important who does say this. Because at this point, Mark has recorded that all of Jesus' friends, his disciples, have abandoned him those who are closest to him, the very ones who proclaimed, if we have to die with you, we will not leave you alone, have left him alone. And they're not there. Despite spending three plus years with Jesus Christ, witnessing and watching all of his miracles and hearing all of his teaching, none of them to this point have gotten the reality that not only is he the Messiah, the Christ, the promised King, but he is God. The Son of God. Despite the fact that Mark has told us that many different times. He said it at the opening verse of the entire gospel. He said the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God opened the heavens at his baptism and said, this is my son. The demons declared Jesus to be the Son of God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice says, this is my son. Listen to him. And finally, here it is, the first human being to speak this not in the possession of a demon is not one of the twelve. It's not those who have been there. It's not an insider at all. It's an outsider. It's a Gentile. It's a Roman soldier. Not some Roman intellectual, but a soldier. Roman centurion was someone who was a a common enlisted man who who worked his way up through the ranks so that he would have authority over a hundred. He's not some social elite of the Roman class. He is run of the mill, blue collar military man. And in this moment, he's the one who finally sees because God gives him the ability to see. And he speaks what is beyond his understanding, what Mark wants us to understand more than anything else. We must understand the identity of this man who was forsaken by God, this man who suffered much, this man who accomplished our ransom from our darkness and our sin. The one who died for you and me was the Son of God. The second person of the Trinity, God himself Clothed in humanity. The truth of your sin and my sin, brothers and sisters, is that sin is so serious. The only way that it can be forgiven is if God Himself died. Let that sink in. The only way that you and I might be redeemed is if God chose to die. And He did. He suffered wrath, he suffered death, he suffered anguish and sin, he suffered relational abandonment. That is what it cost for you and for me to be forgiven. And this all coming together, the identity that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus as the Son of God was forsaken by God so that you and I might receive under the new covenant, a relationship, a closeness, an intimacy with God, what this declares to you and to me, what this means for us is that despite all of the darkness that might come in our lives, whether that's in a dark and sin-stained world that is rapidly moving away from the church and is hostile to you and to me, guess what? Mark's audience lived there. They were being persecuted. They were being killed for their Christianity. You don't have it worse than them. Their darkness was real, as they were fearful. Despite your darkness and my darkness in our sin, despite the darkness that we face as we suffer the sins of other people and the brokenness of the world, there is hope. We can have hope despite the darkness, because the Son was forsaken by the the Father so that we might be welcomed into His presence. That is what this passage of Scripture declares more than anything else to you and to me that despite all of the darkness that exists in our lives, we can have hope. We can have hope because Jesus was forsaken so that you and I never will have to be. Jesus Christ endured the darkness of sin in God's wrath alone so that you and I will never have to be alone again. Jesus endured darkness that we might dwell in his marvelous light forever. Last week I quoted from Revelation about how Jesus is the greater temple. If you go to that same chapter, Revelation 22, what you find is that the sun and the moon and the stars, they are, they don't, there's no need for them in the new creation as God returns to the earth. Why? Because the sun and because the Father are the light. There is no darkness ever again but they are an eternal source of life. And you and I have the freedom and the ability and are welcomed to live in the midst of that marvelous light for all of eternity because Jesus endured the darkness that we deserve right here. And so you and I can know Jesus did not endure darkness so that we would be spared darkness. Instead, Jesus endured darkness so that when we are in darkness whether it is our sin, whether it is anxiety and depression and despair, whether it is darkness of the world coming against us, we can know we are not alone. And we can know that we can run to God who not only welcomes us, we can run to Jesus Christ who understands better than any other human being in the world what you're experiencing. Brothers and sisters, your story is unique. There might be people with similar stories, but I will never be able to understand yours. You will never be able to understand mine. But there's one person who can, and that's Jesus. Because he knows what it is to be forsaken. He knows what it is to face death. He knows what it is to face judgment. He knows no matter how dark and desperate you are, and he calls you to himself. As the Son of God, who doesn't merely die, but as we'll see next week, dies and then is raised. The hope of Christianity is not merely the cross where Jesus paid our debt. The hope of Christianity is the empty tomb because Jesus is alive. And not only is he alive, he's ascended. And so when we talk about our commitment to go in this world, and we talk about the Great Commission, we have to remember that on either side of making, shaping, and sending faithful followers of Jesus Christ is the promises of Jesus. All power has been given to me, and then I am with you always. It's from Jesus, to Jesus, for Jesus. Because he is with us in it. He is who empowers us in it. And he calls you to himself. He calls you to turn to him. As long as we're staring into the darkness, we'll be hopeless. The call of this passage of Scripture today is instead to look to Jesus. To find in Him your hope and the light that will get you through. So I urge you, brother and sister in Christ, look to Jesus today. Look up from the darkness and the despair that has you bound. Look up from your sin, turn away from it, and run to Jesus. and Find in Him your hope. And if you're here this morning and you can't say that you know Jesus is your hope and the hope of your salvation, then I would invite you today. I would invite you today to open your heart, to cry out to the Lord, God, would you let me see as this centurion sees saw the identity of your son who was forsaken for my sake, that I might be set free. I'm going to invite you, if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes and go before the Lord in prayer. And pray that prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the ways that you are looking to the darkness, the ways that you need to look to Jesus. Ask Him to lead you in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And I'll close this in prayer in a moment.